This is Daniel Fagella, Head of Research at Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research. You're listening to the AI in Business podcast. This is episode three in our series of AI culture change in the enterprise. Every day this week, Monday through Friday, that's five days in a row, we are covering high-level episodes about actionable insights for developing an AI-ready culture within your enterprise. There's a lot of angles and perspectives here, and if you missed the first two episodes, I'd admonish you to check them out. Episode one was with IBM's global head of AI, and episode two was with a leader from Facebook AI providing different perspectives on how to take culture change and put it in action. Uh, Today, we focus on the topic of lifting the AI fluency of the enterprise. Those of you who are Emerge Plus members or who are familiar with Emerge's content, you'll be aware of just how often we talk about AI fluency. It's critical that business leaders have a grasp of conceptually what AI can do in terms of use cases and conceptually how AI is used. Without that baseline understanding, culture from the top is not going to shift because AI is always going to seem like IT. And it's just going to be a plug-and-play tool unless leaders understand it. So how do we lift fluency? And how do we do that systematically within an existing enterprise? Well, our guest this week is Andreas Welsh. He is the VP and Head of Intelligent Processes at SAP HANA. Hannah is, of course, SAP's flagship artificial intelligence solution in the enterprise, and he previously spent three years as head of solution management for the Americas for machine learning and artificial intelligence for SAP, so no small role in the AI domain. Andreas talks about two perspectives on improving culture change. Number one, what SAP has done within their own organization. This is a company founded decades ago, one of the largest and best-known enterprise software firms in the world. And they've clearly had to do a lot of changing to adapt and adopt artificial intelligence internally. But also, Andreas speaks from the perspective of SAP's clients, which are some of the largest enterprises in the world. And again, his focus particularly here is on building AI fluency. He has a fantastic example about how SAP leverages networking within their organization to help share AI best practices and lift the AI fluency of some of their members on their product team. And I think it's a brilliant example of something like what other enterprises should be doing. Uh, So these are practices that are being put in place by a large and successful firm that I hope you as our listener will be able to take and run with. Without further ado, I'll let Andreas take it away. If you're interested in more insight on changing culture, developing AI strategy, measuring AI ROI, be sure to check out Emerge Plus. Emerge Plus members get access to our full AI use case library, our full AI white paper library, as well as our full library of AI best practices, that is infographics and guides for measuring ROI, building strategy, strategy and ensuring successful AI adoption. So if you want to see how we boil down interviews like this into short, actionable infographics to help leaders around the world adopt AI with confidence, as well as consultants around the world help their clients adopt AI with confidence, check out emerj.com slash P1. That's P as in plus, and then the number one, emerj.com slash P1. Without further ado, let's roll right into this episode. This is Andreas Welsh with SAP here on the AI and Business Podcast. So Andreas, uh, our series here is on the topic of cultural change. You've had a unique perspective because you've been inside of SAP, one of the uh, better known global software companies in the world for over a decade. And a lot of that has been customer facing as well as internal product facing 
focus around AI products specifically. So you've seen your own company evolve, and you've also seen your clients have to evolve. When you think about the cultural changes that AI requires, and you explain that to business people, what do you start with? What are the key points you want to get across to leaders? I think one of the key points is is, is really, you know, not to be afraid of the technology. And, you know, there's so much hype around the topic um, that it sometimes can can seem a little scary. But the most important part is, first of all, you know, get started, give your teams the, the freedom to to explore it. So for us at, at, at SAP, what that means, when I think back of our transformation, one of the things we did, for example, was that we've established what we call an AI ambassador network, where there's roughly 40, 50 colleagues um, from product management, product engineering type backgrounds that come together, that share their experience, that also listen and, and, and learn uh, from our technology teams, what is available? How can you build AI-based solutions? And you know what has worked for you that might work for me? And what can I apply in, in my domain? So that's something I, I find really exciting and, and, and I find very helpful. And that's also the feedback we get. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Keep keep going. I, I, we are absolutely going to touch base on that because I love the idea, the fact that we're we're making retained learning into a real practice within the organization. I will tell you straight up, it is obvious most enterprises are not doing that. And I I was smiling while you were talking. I was like, that is such a lovely way to make learning into something that's mandated. But anyway, I don't want to stop your flow. Yeah. You were going into what are the cultural changes. So one of them was you know sharing those learnings, building this network. Keep going. Go ahead. Absolutely. And and so from my uh, from my previous work with customers in. in and, um, helping with the um, discovery of available solutions, what can you do with it, and, and how can you implement them? What I've seen there, uh, specifically one one of my customers in life science uh, do, was to really involve the business functions, the business analysts, as early as possible in a project, and to be open and, and be transparent about what it is that you want to do and what you want to achieve. You know, a, a lot of times AI automation. You know, we, we we paint a bit of a dystopian future, if if you will, or jobs are at, at risk. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, sure. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, um, and 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 that fear is is very real to to people and to users that are impacted by the change. So the more you can do to be open and transparent and say, look, this is how it really helps you. You know, the more trust you will gain. One example: the customer that I was working with, the use case was around uh, finance and accounts receivable, matching incoming payments to open invoices. You wouldn't believe how monotonous uh, and, and, and repetitive that task is, right? And um, you know, companies employ shared service centers and, and lots of people doing that work, uh, especially when they have not even automated it with rules. So instead of you know saying, hey, you know, your job is at risk because that AI will cover 85, 95% of, of their work and you only need to work in the exceptions, you know, it's also how you frame that problem and, and, and that improvement, right? Instead of you having to go through hundred of transactions, maybe today you only need to focus on five. And those are the ones that are really tough. And that's where we need your help. But the other, you know, 95, we take care of or the system yeah, takes care yeah, of. Yeah, yeah, right? So it's a whole different narrative. Oh, got it. So we've got three points highlighted. If you had a fourth you want to chip in, I'd love to hear it. But I'm just going to nutshell here. And then we're going to break these apart individually because it's all about getting to those actionable insights for the listeners. And we've got some good stuff on the table. So the first was around... Uh, getting started with the technology and sharing those lessons learned. I have a lot to dive into on that with you. I'm very excited about that topic. The second one that you mentioned was 
pulling in and involving other stakeholders earlier on in the project. And we're going to break more into that as well. And the third here that you've just mentioned is that it does have to do a bit with how you frame it. Because I think this one might be short, I want to poke into your number three and talk about this framing idea. Because um, when we have vendors on, of course, the vendors always have to say, oh, our, you know, our technology will never automate any jobs. It's all about augmenting. And I'm not, I don't blame vendors for that because they have to keep up that narrative. But clearly there's some tension here. You know, in the future, we may have less people in the call center. We may have less people in certain roles. Maybe we can repurpose them all, but honestly, we, we may not be able to. We'll also have new roles that'll come in from AI. So there's some automation, some augmentation that's happening. You're talking about the cultural change as uh, the, the framing being key to the to the cultural change. What's the practical advice you'd bring to bear there? You know, you're working with somebody in a procurement office, you're working with somebody in a call center, whatever. Maybe even as a manager, they're a little worried about their job or something. How, how, do, how do you frame um, things in a way that facilitates culture change happening? Because it does feel to me like the fear would actually prevent culture change. So I, I like that this because this is about unlocking the communication flows to actually make change happen. How do you like to address it? So the important part is is really that you can show the value that this AI and enhanced or embedded capability brings. And again, most of the time, uh, especially when you talk about shared services, it is automating repetitive mundane tasks that analysts or, or users might not even want to do in the first place, right? That's that's not what gets them, that's not what gets you excited and gets you out of bed. Um, but if you can say, hey, look, we, we take care of this this repetitive stuff that nobody likes anyways, but that we just need to do or needed to do until now. And, you know, that gives you the ability to, for example, call up your customer and, 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 and ask, you know, I didn't see that payment today. What's What's happening? You said you were going to pay, and and have more of that that personal um, connection again. Make time for that personal connection and, and make room for it. I, I've seen that um, you know um, folks in in shared service centers that are now leveraging the AI capabilities are a lot more receptive to that idea and, and the narrative, which is what I would recommend. You know? So it sounds like when you're introducing an AI project, lead with the value and the workflow impact for them in a way that's a net positive, not like, hey, we're going to be adopting a new technology. Here's how it works. And said, you know, be sure to double down on here's the changes we're looking to make for our, our agents experience and how how and where they can focus. There's a lot of value in those relationships and those really personal calls. We want to make sure we have time for those. We also want to get rid of the stuff that everybody's bored with already anyway. So you're saying lead with the experience for them as opposed to maybe the technology change or some other some other way of framing it. Put it into the, the the life and the values of the person who's going to be impacted. Absolutely, because one one other thing to to, to build on that um, that you just reminded me of, you know, you also want and, and need to get feedback. Uh, how well is this AI now performing? Um, how well does it need to perform? Where are our challenges today? You know, whether you do a pilot or a proof of concept or you go th uh, straight to an implementation, you you certainly want to measure the before and the after. The more understanding and, and, and support you can get from the user on, on the business side, the more value it brings you as well, because you can articulate that improvement so much better than also within your organization and continue getting the support and funding you know, for the next thing and the next thing. And this brings us right into your point two, and we're going to get to that point one around shared learning in a second, but um, it just brings us to your point two about collaboration. It is patently obvious you know, for us here from our standpoint that improving kind of team collaboration around AI projects is really necessary. It's not sort of, hey, we just need the IT people to plug it in and then that's it. AI projects often involve 
more stakeholders at the table and a lot of kind of rounds of feedback, that is a culture change, as you're aware. You know, okay, maybe I'm willing to give you one of my call center guys to give you some guidance in a single meeting, but otherwise, okay, go write all your code, right? But they don't realize we might need multiple ambassadors who spend more time providing feedback on the algorithm and helping us build out our ontologies for call centers than they do in their work. So we, we don't want to, we don't want to ask it as a favor. Ah, have some extra meetings with the IT guys. They kind of need you. We actually need to full blown pull them off of certain work and put them into this project and, and make that more embedded. All of these things feel like they feel to, to most business leadership like hurdles. They feel like challenges. They feel like extra pain that AI is making them go through. The way we like to frame it is that this is actually loosening up the soil to unlock the power of data. We're, we're building new habits, building new culture, building new ways of collaboration. That's not friction. That's actually a productive evolution. But that's very hard to make click, uh, Andreas. And, and how do you encourage this kind of co collaboration and introduce it in a way that is not purely intimidating? Because you and I both know that leader doesn't want to pull those three guys off the front line. You know, he, he just wants everything to work like normal and for you guys to work in the back room and do your AI magic. So talk about how you handle that. Again, that's a, that's a very important point because, you know, through that collaboration, I, I think that also instills a much stronger sense of ownership in the final solution. Whether you talk about it in the context of customers implementing AI-based solutions, you know, yes, absolutely, we we 100% need the, the the business expertise because otherwise, you know, on the technology side, yes, we we, we know very well how technology works and, and and how to make it work, but it's it's that combination of business and technology where we need both skill sets in the room and rightfully to your point, not just for an occasional meeting or two, but again, seeing that that progress again in in skill set ownership and accomplishing something together. Looking at it from from our perspective as a as a software vendor, I think again it's it's, it's an aspect of of community, also sometimes of of share, shared pain, right, and and shared learning, that helps foster that. And how do you get leadership to say yes? You know, how do you introduce the idea that hi, AI is a little different than IT. We're going to require multiple stakeholders in the room to help to determine the actual parameters of our goals. We're going to need stakeholders in the room to provide ongoing feedback to how well the algorithm's being trained and, you know, to iterate and R&D our way forward. You know, how do you lay that on the table, that reality on the table in a way that gets any response other than, why the hell is this so hard? You know, which is, of course, what they would think immediately if they just assumed AI is IT. And you and I are both well aware that many leading executives are perfectly smart people, but they're they're not aware of these differences. So how do you, how do you even bring it up without it being a very high friction topic. Yes. And, you know, I think it needs to be part of your methodology or, or part of a framework uh, when you in, engage with stakeholders, again, be it external or, or be it in, internal, that this is a key part, that is a key phase before you, you know, before you write the first line of code or before you even look at the data. Because I think in the end, who wants to own or to run something or be responsible for something when you don't really have ownership or understanding of, of some of the in intricacies when you haven't been around the table or around the same table and made those decisions. Yeah. But you say, oh, yeah, you, you know, you go off, you build it, and and I'll just adopt it. I think human nature there there tends to be so much of not invented here syndrome in a sense. Yeah. So so the question is how how can you flip that around and and make it an invented here together kind of approach. That's why I think. It's, it's, it's so important right, and, and to address it up front. So you frame it as kind of a building of ownership 
that's the win. Like Mr. Buyer, you know, you guys are our vendor in some case. Of course, you've gone through your own transformation at SAP over the last 10 years and you've been able to see that up close. But if we talk about your your customers, you know, Mr. Buyer, the reason that having all this involvement is a good thing is because we're able to not only build a better AI solution that's more informed from your best subject matter experts, but also we're building buy-in along the way to make sure that people use it more. Is, am I summing up what you're saying well, or is there anything you want to add to that? Perfectly summed up. One one additional point that that comes to mind, and again, that, that reminds me of of um, the, the the project in finance and in life science, is that depending on on how you present the the information that your AI has generated to the end user, there's also a, a bit of a knowledge transfer and, and enablement component in it. Obviously, once you know that thing goes live, you want your end users to know and to understand how it works or what exactly it, it improves and what to look for especially in, in things like a hyper care phase when you need to do uh, maybe a few more tweaks than later on once it's in, in, in production, when it's more reoccurring or, or, or more scheduled. So from, from that perspective, it is also important that especially in, in the enterprise, you do have that knowledge in your own organization, how this new AI thing, this shiny thing re really works. And yes. maybe you see some false positives, right? They're unavoidable, but knowing that they do exist when you talk about confidence uh, levels, confidence scores. Yeah, maybe in that case, 80 is really not that great, but you really want to be more to uh, closer to 95, 98. Whereas to somebody who's not as familiar with AI, 80 sounds like, you know, awesome, right? But when you look at the data, when you run it through the model, it's like, yeah, you know, sometimes it's right, sometimes it's not. So those intricacies, I think at least in the current phase and, and state of the market where we are, that's why it's so important having that buy-in, having people around the table and really collaborate. And so I, I, I like that wording. I'll, I'll throw kind of one more point from some of our frameworks and research about why I think what you're talking about is so valuable and just see if it resonates with you, if you have anything to add to it. And then we'll get to your, your shared learning point, which was your first uh, point here. We think about ROI in three strata. So there's measurable ROI, how much money do we make or save? Very hard to gauge exactly when that's going to happen. These are R&D projects, but we need to hold the projects accountable. So we need a measurable ROI. It might be customer service score, but often it's going to be financial. Number two would be some kind of strategic ROI. Does this bring us closer to a strategic mandate? Is this supporting a key thrust we're already committed to? Is this supporting the transformation in terms of our customer experience or operations that we're already committed to? Is it have a strategic ROI? And number three is a capability ROI. Is it helping to build AI maturity and AI fluency in our company? Do we have a better understanding of our data? Do we have subject matter expert leaders who understand AI problems better and can now be better collaborators to build out new AI solutions? Maybe they can even identify AI solutions. Isn't the ideal world when the people working on the problems can think of the solutions instead of the guy off in the AI center of excellence magically cooking up the ways that we can improve all the individual parts of the business? So we frame what you're talking about right there in terms of the development of understanding that starts to come about and in the collaboration between data science and subject matter experts as the building of that soil and actually as part of the ROI is are we smarter at doing AI in general as a team? And we we would advocate that leaders learn that that's part of the win here is that your fifth and sixth and seventh project, if you're learning well, is going to be easier and smoother and you're going to have a more powerful team to execute because of that. Would you double down on that point or have anything to add to it? Absolutely. You're spot on. A couple of years ago, I was doing a, a, a scientific study with a group of recruiters and HR IT folks. And it was about, you know, um, things like resume matching, proposing and, and, and recommending job openings based on your resume. And I asked, you know, what would you say is 
is an improvement for you? What are you looking for? And some of the feedback I, I got from the participants was, well, if the system makes a better decision than my human recruiter would do, or than I as a recruiter would do, you know, that's an improvement. And you very quickly get down to that question of, well, what is a good decision? That's and, exactly you know, it. Right? That's exactly it. Right. So if you compare numbers and payments to invoices and finance and you have absolute values, it's a lot easier to answer, I believe, than when there's a social aspect and, 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 and also a personal biased aspect in that, you know, two people probably don't assess a candidate the same way. To me, it comes down to the question, what is my baseline? How do I measure it? What do I want to improve? And and the points you touched on, whether it's the AI literacy, whether it's being able to, to define problem and the baseline based on hard facts and data and then measure it and measure the improvement with, with AI, I think all of that goes together. But you definitely need to know what's your starting point and what do you want to improve and me measure that along the way. Do it, learn it. On, on these three different levels, I, I think they're they're excellent and, and resonates really, really well with me. Awesome. Cool. Okay. I, I appreciate you putting that in context with your experience as well. I would agree, you know, in that HR example, all of a sudden now our subject matter experts are going to need to think a little bit more data oriented. They're going to think about what does good mean? What's a level five for a match of skill and what's a level one? Do we Can we quantify this, right? Now we're all going to get a little smarter about how we might be able to move this project forward where if we just said give me good decisions, you know, of course, that that's not enough collaboration to make it happen. Okay, last point exactly. here, you brought up a really interesting aspect of SAP's internal transformation, which was building out a network of AI ambassadors. Obviously, again, setting the soil up so that AI can grow so we can unlock the value of data so that we can genuinely transform is about making more members of the team, particularly leadership, AI fluent. And consultants are frustrated with this, vendors are frustrated with this, they're dealing with folks that just have expectations and understandings of AI that are so subpar, it makes it actually hard to make progress. Talk about this, like who was selected as an ambassador and what were the parts of that program that you feel like were a real needle mover in cultural improvement for SAP? What made it powerful? Absolutely. We selected across a wide range of, of uh, skill sets and, and experiences. So we had some rather junior folks on, on the team, some rather senior folks, some that had already uh, had some exposure to predictive analytics, modeling, data analysis, some that were really starting out. And I think it was that mix of people, of skill sets, um, of backgrounds that, first of all, has, has made that group a, a success and, and, and has made it engaging because everybody could learn something from anybody. Right? Yeah, yeah. The parts that, that, that we found helpful were obviously on, on, on one side, the, the technology aspects of, of what is available to you internally, what can you use, how, how should you frame this problem, how do you think about value as a vendor, how do we commercialize it, is it something that's embedded in a product, is it something that we commercialize separately, and for what reasons. But what we've heard as, as feedback from uh, from our AI ambassadors is actually that they've gotten even more value out of networking sessions, if you will, sharing what has worked for you, what hasn't, what can I adopt in my own product? And, and we've seen some good spin-offs, if, if you will, from that. You know, some some, some things that are, are maybe not not as complex as, as you might expect or as, as you need them to be, but they're really an improvement for an end user. So think about, you know, recommending inputs for a form field. Sure. If, yeah. if we, right. So it, it doesn't have to be a, a moonshot or a 10x improvement in the eyes of, of us technologists and, and product people, but it has to be a 10x improvement in the eyes of the customer and in the eyes of the user. That's what really moves the needle. 
Got it. So it, this networking element is really important. So it sounds like you pick people of different levels of seniority. Was it also all people in some way touching product or was it people in all different facets and elements of SAP? So for, for our network, that, that was all in, in products. In so, okay, um, so got it. From engineering, architecture, all the way to product management. So different different skill sets, different kinds of exposure to either customer problem or technology. Totally makes sense. Okay, so some people working mostly with the code, some people working mostly with the customer, some people working on design-related stuff, whatever. And yes. I would imagine you would select people that have some kind of existing enthusiasm or propensity towards this stuff. Because I feel like if you drew lots, you wouldn't really have an excited group. How did they pick the people that they knew were really going to get some juice out of this and really share some great insights? So so for that, we reached out to, to our senior leadership team in, in engineering and asked them to nominate individuals out of their organizations. Some high performers, some people where they know or knew that these colleagues already had an interest in learning more about this. And that's really proven to, to be quite successful for us. So I can only recommend that. Yeah, great. I mean, you know, one of the reasons people go to events in AI is, oh, well, I get to see what my peers are doing. What are they learning about setting up our data infrastructure to do recommendation engines? What are they learning about hiring ML talent and embedding them with new subject matter experts early on and getting them up to speed on a business process? And it sounds like what you guys are doing is bringing that internally. Um, so my last question is, what are some of the elements, maybe we can't get into all the details, but what are some of the elements of how you facilitated that networking? Was it, okay, we've got 40 of you around the product. You know, we're going to have little coffee sessions of four of you at a time that are going to happen once a month, or we're going to have a big session where everybody comes together and we're going to share these kind of things in order. You know, what was the facilitation of the interconnection of this network? Because that's really where a lot of the value is coming from. How was that facilitated? Absolutely. So first of all, you know, it's it's a lot of work. It's It's a lot of effort. And we have a, a team dedicated to this in, in our organization that, that leads this because, you know, like I said, it, it starts with emails, newsletters, invitations, getting on people's calendar, making sure everybody's available, lining up speakers, topics, agendas, and, and so on, right? And so it was really a mix of, of different formats. You know, for technology, we in, invited uh, some colleagues from, from our platform teams on, on the technology side of uh, the, the organization in, in the house to share what's new, what's available, how can you use it? Other formats, like you mentioned, networking could be three, four, five people um, either in, in one location or in one time zone coming together, you know, in times of COVID that happens virtually still for the most part, but e exchanging that that information. It's, it's really different flavors and, and we found it, it depends on whether it's a presentation to a larger group or, or say to all 40. Or if it is something where it's it's more of a conversation, more of an exchange, and we wanted to give more, you know, a, a smaller group of people more opportunity and more airtime yeah. to talk and ask questions. Got it. Okay. So some expectations to set, if I'm nutshelling what you just said, which is really helpful. Um, number one, you've got to have a team that can make sure you can collaborate, get people in the same room, et cetera. You can't count on this thing being self-organizing entirely. We've got to have, you know, some sort of a, a networking function built out that can make this happen. Um, second, a mix of how they're engaging. Sometimes they're all going to show up and listen to an outside expert of some kind, or sometimes they're going to be a smaller group thing where they're all going to share their different stories and experience. But we we, we build out a mix of different ways that they're going to interact over the course of a given year. And that's just kind of ongoing. So it sounds like people should be prepared that, you know, it's not easy to wrangle calendars, but that uh, a mix of different ways to engage will maybe be the the highest value for them. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Retained learning. We have an entire article on it. We talk about it a ton in Capability ROI. For those of you emerged listeners who've been with us for a long time, our, our uh, model for AI ROI, some of you are familiar with it. I think we've got a lot of great detail about what it looks like to put that stuff in action. So, Andreas, I know that's all we have for time. I sincerely appreciate you sharing your expertise. This has been a real blast. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. So that wraps up episode three of this five-part series on AI culture change here on the AI and Business Podcast. I appreciate Andreas joining us in this episode, and I appreciate him showing us under the kimono as to one of the strategies SAP is using themselves as an enterprise to lift the fluency of their internal leaders. I thought that that was a priceless tip and hopefully something that some of our listeners will put in action. We have two more guests in this culture change series. Our guest tomorrow is gonna break down the concept of AI maturity in depth and do so from the perspective of a company that's raised over $100 million to help enterprises build their AI maturity. So this is a technology firm predicated on lifting the fluency, lifting the maturity of firms, which really does require culture change. You're going to get another startup perspective tomorrow. So if you want to understand AI maturity and what it means, what the components of maturity are, and where culture fits in, do not miss our interview tomorrow. I appreciate you being here in this series. This was a big kickoff series for me. My birthday was November 2nd, so Tuesday's episode was my birthday and I wanted to do something that would be fun, do something that would be interesting, and give myself a great excuse to talk to some of the big names of folks that I really wanted to talk to in the past um, and find a great excuse to bring their insights together. So I hope you're enjoying and having a little bit of fun and learning some great insights in my little birthday week here, and I hope you enjoy our next couple episodes as well. Again, I appreciate you as a listener. So thanks again. Look forward to catching you in tomorrow's episode here on the AI in Business podcast. 